Father, we have been worshiping. We are gathered as a conference family. Now we are seeking your spirit to bring your word to life. To tenderize our hearts. To lead us in the narrow way. To comfort and strengthen us. To encourage us, Lord. So help us to hear. Set a watch before my lips and a guard before the door of my mouth. Please take a coal from off the altar and set me free. And I pray, Lord, touch the hearts and the ears of all that are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want you to know Satan has a church. It's not exactly how you think it's comprised. Writing in the General Conference Bulletin in 1897, Noah said Satan has a church upon the earth which outnumbers the church of Christ. Christ calls it the synagogue of Satan because its members are the children of sin and transgression. They've ceased to honor God. They've cast His divine law aside. They have confounded the distinction between good and evil. I need you to hear that phrase again. They have confounded the distinction between good and evil. But the world's Redeemer will have a church in which these essential differences will be made apparent. I want you to look at a slide for a moment. It'll be the only slide I used this morning. You can't read it but you can see how the lines go. Now, I want to explain to you what the lines are. On the left side of the slide, you see a red and maroon line. It starts out at zero and it quickly jumps up. That line represents the laws that have been passed in this country prohibiting same-sex marriage. I want you to see in a generation how rapidly things can change. In 1996, the Defense of Marriage Act was passed. And right away, about 30 states, they're clustered there in the first years following it, sign on and they have laws banning same-sex marriage. Now, Jesus loves everybody. And Corinthians tells us, and we're going to look at Corinthians quite a little bit today, God can rescue us from anything. But I want you to notice the cultural shift. Over the next 20 years, Almost every state in the nation takes its cue from the Defense of Marriage Act and establishes a law against same-sex marriage. But slowly, the bottom line, the green line, starts out so slowly at about 2002, 2003, Massachusetts passes a law that allows same-sex marriage. And you see a few more adding on. And I want you to know, that on Tuesday following camp meeting, we will be at the two-year anniversary of the Supreme Court's ruling to legalize same-sex marriage. Those lines show how rapidly things change. Now, in the midst of it all, it's not too hard for us to know, even without that slide, that the church is under siege. For over 200 years, up until 1965, the church in America grew numerically. And every year since then, the church has found itself on the wrong side of the statistical analysis. 
Our churches as Seventh-day Adventists are in a place where they are particularly vulnerable and we need to go back and recognize that we have weapons of warfare that are mighty for pulling down the strongholds that are sieging in against us. But if you listen carefully, you'll hear between the lines and some of the rhetoric that the church is the problem. As a matter of fact, the people who hold the microphones in our country today are not bashful about making sure that everything we've stood for as a nation is really everything we need to stand against now. And I'm here this morning with a sermon entitled, How Low Can the Church Go? to try to encourage you and challenge you as was prayed for by our ministerial director that we might be ready to meet Jesus. The church, is it the problem? When my mother was 18 years old, she left the church. It probably coincided with when she left Broadview Academy. But you know, it's hard to get the church out of a person. My mother's watching today, and I have a depth of gratitude which is hard to imagine for this lady. But she couldn't get too far away from the church. You know why? Because she had a praying mother. My grandmother had one of the most unique names you're ever going to hear. Her name was Jetty, like the airplane. Theola, which is not a name you hear very often, smart. Now, Theola is a Greek word. It means divine. And I want to assure you that my mother, who served the Peoria Church in Illinois for approximately 50-some years, loved Jesus and she loved His church. And mom was being prayed for by her mom. Well, I don't know how it worked out. My grandmother somehow arranged for me, the oldest of four, from my mother to take us to church. And I can remember going. My first real memory of the church was in the early 70s. I came to the primary class a little bit late. They were seated in a big circle. And I went in there and sat down. And pretty soon they came around and they handed out something to each of us. I flipped it over. I didn't know much about the Bible. But I knew that it was a book of the Bible. So people started going around telling what book they had. And now I look back on it and I'm awful glad I didn't get Haggai or, or Zephaniah or Deuteronomy or something like that. I got the only book in the Bible that has three letters. So I thought, okay, this will be easy. So it's almost my turn. I've got my card in my hand. And as they come around to my point in the circle, I'm feeling pretty confident this will be a good beginning. And I hold up my book and I say, I have got the book of Job. And everybody else thought it was funny too, with one exception. I didn't want to go back. You know, send your children to the Sabbath school as missionaries. Help them to know somebody might show up there that day. And how can you help it? I mean, everybody knows that you pronounce the book of Job as Job, except me. But I learned it that day. My mom wasn't giving up. I'm not exactly sure why. It was probably grandma too behind the scenes. A year or two later, she sent me to Pathfinders. I went on a, I went on a, a weekend camp out, which turned out to be a rain fest. Some of you can understand that. They used to have old green pup tents that were made of canvas. It was long before the high-tech days, and they only sort of shed water. And I can remember a 10-mile hike and beanhole beans and, and lots of interesting memories, but it wasn't enough. I really didn't want to go back. 
And then in our centennial year as a nation, my mother, while we were at my aunt and uncle's house who lived near Broadview Academy, we were enjoying a family get-together, and my mother took me out on the porch, and she told me my world was changing. Okay. At 12 years of age, I'm taller than my mother. And I was curious what she had to say. And I don't think I could have heard anything worse. You see, my mother was a mother. She wasn't a self-esteem coach. She was someone who understood what was best for me, and she had the courage to enact it. My father is a great man. He doesn't go to church, but he's a man of integrity. She'd been working on him for a dozen years. And finally, she had the pieces in place, and she looked up at me and she said, Ronnie, in a few weeks, you're going to a church school. And I couldn't have had anything worse said to me. All that's flashing through my mind is that I'm ignorant about the Bible. I won't fit in there any better than I fit in where I'm at. And that's the last place on earth I want to be. One year later, I was in a baptismal tank with my sister. One year later, I had received my call to ministry after our church school teachers nurtured us in giving little sermonettes. I don't like the word, but that's what it is, and that's what it was. And one year later after that, my mother received a phone call. It was in the evening. I think it was a Sunday. It was the summer again. And this time, it was not a very good experience. It should have been a personal visit. I'm going to tell you that right offhand. It was administrative malpractice. And I just want to encourage all of you that are leading in the church to lead with heart and head and take some risks because the way this worked out, it shouldn't have worked out. It was a phone call. There were four of us put in church school all at the same time. My mother and father had not done the best job of keeping up with the bill, but you can imagine no budget for Christian education and then a budget for four kids. It's not wrong that they needed to talk to my family about money. But it was a mistake that they called and told us that we couldn't come back to school until the bill was paid. Now you have to remember this is a backslidden lady with a non-Adventist husband. Her four kids have been put in the church school. Two of them are baptized. One of them has stood before them and has the evidence of God's Spirit with a spiritual giftedness. And it would have been alright if they would have come by and said, Mrs. Kelly, is there anything we can do to partner with you because we really want this to work, but something's not quite right? Well, I want to tell you, my sister gushed into tears. I slunk down the stairs into my basement where my room was to grieve. My sister was sad. My mother was mad. And my life looked like it was caving in because I loved my teacher and I loved my classmates and I loved my school now why am I preaching this sermon today and why am I going to talk about the church for four more times after this because number one I love this church I'm here in spite of the ups and downs the bumps and the bruises I'm here in spite of the challenges I'm here because Jesus is leading this church and He's going to lead it all the way up to the gates of heaven and I'm planning to be there when those saints go marching in. 
This church has got challenges, but this church, while it has problems, is not the problem. This church is the divine instrumentality of salvation for as many as will hear, and it is our privilege to give the message. The second reason I'm pe preaching this sermon is because the church school I attended, which went all the way up to 10 grades before we were done, isn't there anymore. And the academy I attended, which had 71 people in my class and over 200 in attendance, isn't there anymore. Although my academy principal is here today and I just want to honor him by telling him what a blessing he was in my life. I'm praising God today and I'm preaching on this because there are things about the church and experiences with the church that some have never had and don't know. Our Scripture reading this morning was from the book of Isaiah chapter 28. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people. This next verse especially, for a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment, and now the last verse for you and for me. And for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gates. Listen, the church is under siege by society. There is potential division from inside. There is unsettledness in the young and sometimes inflexibility in the old. We are looking for principle and power and a rebirth of God's love and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you, the church is going to win. The church is God's fortress, Ellen White writes in Acts of the Apostles. His city of refuge, which He holds in a revolted world. Any betrayal of the church is treachery to Him. Jesus, who bought mankind with the blood of His only begotten Son. From the beginning, faithful souls have constituted the church on earth. In every age, the Lord has had His watchmen who have borne a faithful testimony to the generation in which they lived. These sentinels gave the message of warning. And when they were called to lay off their armor, others took it up. God brought these witnesses into covenant relation with Himself. Listen to this. Uniting the church on earth with the church in heaven. He has sent forth His angels to minister to His church, and the gates of hell have not been able to prevail against His people. Now, we're going to look at a number of verses today, but we're not going to look these next ones up. You can reference them. But I want to remind you before I jump into how low the church can go, is that the church, according to Paul writing to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 15, is the pillar and the support of the truth. Those pillars are being hammered on, but they're not going to fall. The second thing you need to know, according to Ephesians 1, 22-23, is that the church is the body of Christ. And you're part of it. I don't know what part you are, but you're part of it. And nobody ever hated his own body. And the third thing you need to know is that the church, according to Ephesians 3.10, is the theater of grace to the intent that the wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is an amazing thing God would use us to explain Himself to the universe. Now take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Matthew chapter 16. How low can the church go? Matthew chapter 16, we'll be looking at verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. And I'm reading 
out of the New American Standard Bible. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And by the way, if you want to check it out, get a New American Standard and read the commentary with it, and you'll see that the commentary and the New American Standard are very, very close, and it's not very far off from the New King James or the King James. Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He was asking His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But He said to them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now this next verse contains the first use of the word church in the New Testament. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build whose church? I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not be able to overpower it. Well, I'm not going to go there, but I need you to know that this church was not built on Peter. The Bible will make this exceptionally clear. The subject matter of this narrative is Jesus. The church is built on Jesus. But if you're in doubt, Paul will clarify it in Ephesians 1.19 where he will say, Jesus is the cornerstone. And in 1 Corinthians, he will tell us no other foundation can be laid than that which was laid. Jesus Christ. But there's a little bit more we need to see. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. The point Jesus is making is that I am turning over to you as a body of believers, no one individual. I am going to put in the hands of the church the stewardship of the divine. The idea that the church would be empowered to bring with and to draw out and to establish a heavenly citizenship to make a connection that goes from mortal to immortal is an awesome privilege and responsibility. You can't carry forward this work with a casual commitment to the church. It's the stewardship of the divine. Now, Matthew 18 will cover the same subject matter. Jesus will tell them, if you've got a problem, go to your brother and talk about it cellularly. If they don't listen, take somebody else. Jesus will then say, if they won't listen to two or three, tell it to the who? The church. And if they won't listen to the church, treat them as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, Paul will clarify what that means a little later on. But I want to tell you, as we start making our journey into how low the church can go, the church will sink low when it doesn't have the ability, which would be part of tonight's topic, and it doesn't know how to hold people accountable. This is almost impossible in the age we're living in because we are so minimally bonded. The reason I could hold my children accountable in my home is because my wife and I are exceptionally bonded. These kids have been launched into an adulthood where they can succeed because there was no division between us. But I want to assure you, the church is the family of God, just like our cellular families. It takes encouragement, but it also takes accountability. 
Turn over to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to spend most of our time looking at the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. How low can the church go? Now, it's hard to imagine that in a short period of time, a group of people that Paul spiritually birthed, he'll tell them, you may have many teachers, but you've only got one spiritual father. Could be in a situation like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. Verse 2, it gets even worse. They're not ashamed. The New American Standard Version says, you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. This is clarification on Matthew 18. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the Spirit, have already judged him. Now that's not condemnation of the person, but it is judgment against the action. Who has so committed this as though I, and has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you assemble, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. How low can the church go? The church is so low in Corinth that where it's supposed to be a city set on a hill, where it's supposed to be the brightest, it's the darkest. Now I need you to think about this. You may be in a church that has challenges. If you have membership, you do belong to one. It has challenges. It has problems. It hopefully doesn't have a problem this bad because it's not just that there was immorality, it's that the immorality was celebrated under the supposed umbrella of grace. Now, I'm sure listening to me here today, there is and are people that are struggling with immorality. I want you to know the church is a good place to go. They will love you, they will encourage you, and they will challenge you to find the path and help you find the path of happiness. This is not an impardonable sin, but it is a serious problem because the church is celebrating its a mismanaged concept of grace. Now, we talk about the church as a hospital. A hospital for sinners. I don't want anybody to raise their hand, but just think about it for a minute. How many of you hope before camp meeting is over that you can rush down to the hospital? Not too many. And why do you go to the hospital? You go to the hospital because you're sick. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that hospital experiences aren't self-esteem journeys. When the doctor sits down to talk to you, if he's kind enough to you to give you an accurate diagnosis, you might be hopeful enough to get out of there and think that you'll live another day or two. How would you feel if somebody just left the hospital and they couldn't wait to find you and they, got, they were sitting across the table from you and they leaned over and they said, you won't believe what happened to me. I went to the hospital. And while I was there, they, they poked and they probed and they, they took a needle and stuck it in me. And, and when they were all said and done, they told me that I was sick. And they gave me this nasty tasting stuff called medicine. I think sometimes the modern day church is 
wanting to act more like a leprosarium where you come and you don't go and you stay the same, I think we've forgotten that sometimes it is actually the church's job to wound people. That's not something that's done cavalierly and it's not done carelessly, but Proverbs 27 tells us that the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. We've heard, we've read, we've seen in the spirit of prophecy that there will be scads of people in the day of Jesus appearing who will have an unexpressible fury against their pastors because they refused to tell them the truth that was hard to hear. But James Dobson used to say, I'd rather tell the truth that hurts than heals than a falsehood that comforts and then kills. The church sinks its lowest when it doesn't know what true love is and doesn't know how to administer it. So how do these rules and standard of conduct fit in? Well, we'll spend a night on that too. 21st century church and its standards. It's not legalism though. My kids, they didn't have to work to become Kellys. All four of them, that was given to them by their mother and I. But I want you to understand the way they live defines what we've put into them. The way they live is a definition on what a Kelly is. And I want you to know something. The rules are not there to make them Kellys, but the rules do protect their spiritual, mental, relational, and physical health. Western culture is about self-expression. Christian culture is about self-control. And the church says no so that we can receive Jesus in a way that allows us to walk the happy path. Churches like preachers and teachers and parents are to stand in the way of self-destruction. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing with the Corinthian church. And you know, after he sent that letter, he wrung his hands and he got on his knees and he thought, should I have sent that letter? The answer was yes. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 3. How low can the church go? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men, you could say people of the flesh, as the infants of Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, you're not now able to receive it. For you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then's Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Don't be confused, Paul says. I planted Apollos water, but the only reason it grew was what? God. When a church gets into the posture of celebrity teachers or preachers, the church is letting other people do its studying when the church is hiding behind the opinion of an expert and they don't open their Bibles, they're on their way to the bottom. The Protestant Reformation was not based on your ability to parse Greek or Hebrew. The Protestant Reformation was based on your ability to read the Bible in your language and compare Scripture with Scripture. And in this age of intellectualism, we better be careful because we're running the Reformation in reverse. Be clear. The holy prophets of old give the big picture and you can dig down as much as you want to clarify it. 
But the big picture is not derived from something only those with PhDs or MDivs can get. Praise God is right. Turn over 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Chapter 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous? And not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That is a phrase deep with Adventist theology. If the world is judged by you, and you are not competent to constitute the smallest law courts, he's saying there's a problem. Do you not know, verse 3, that we will judge the angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with the matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account? Now this is a church so poorly bonded that they can't even get together and agree on an elder or somebody with some maturity of understanding to help solve a problem. And the church will sink very low when it's so poorly bonded they can't talk through their problems. It was an embarrassment to Christ. It was a dock on the church for them to be airing their dirty laundry. Ellen White will say we ought to suffer wrong rather than do wrong. But we're not used to suffering through anything, not even waiting an extra minute to get our bean burrito at Taco Bell. I want to remind you that Jesus was a man of sorrows and sufferings and acquainted with grief. And we are walking the nail-pierced, the blood-stained path of Jesus. And if you want to be a part of a healthy church and you want to help your church be healthy, it's going to be very important that you understand that there will be times when things won't be made right right away. But you'll be surprised. Over time, Jesus has the ability to turn it around. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We go here at least once a quarter as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I received from the Lord that's which I also delivered to you. Skip down to verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim it. Verse 28. But a man must examine himself why? Because there's problems. Jump up earlier into the chapter. He says in verse 17, but I give this instruction. He's not in any way able to affirm them for how they're conducting themselves in this part of the worship service. I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and I'm prone to believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are proved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Don't be confused. What you've been doing is not what I taught you and it's not what you think it is. For in eating, each one takes his own supper first. And one is hungry and another's drunk. What? Do you have houses where you can eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God? Now the church is going down low when it can't maintain its own culture. When there is not a culture where the manners and the habits and the courtesies are several notches above the regular society. And I'm going to talk to the parents first right now. 
This May, I went to four graduations. All of them for Seventh-day Adventist schools. And I will tell you that at some, I was sorely disappointed. You need to remember that I was converted through a Christian teacher, a Seventh-day Adventist teacher, in a Seventh-day Adventist school. There would be few. If Paul can brag about being circumcised on the eighth day and a son of Benjamin, there will be few that could embrace with greater joy and humility and thankfulness than me, my appreciation for Christian education. But we need some more going on in the homes to match up with what's going on in the churches. Hopefully. And what's going on in the schools. Because I was, my spirit was jarred as I sat through some of these experiences that were actually held in churches, which is not a bad place to hold them, and beyond the appropriate affirmation of achievement with the clapping of the hands, you could hear the hooting and the hollering and the whistling, forgetting that it's the God of heaven that put the breath in the lungs and the beat in the heart and the intellect in the brain and the determination in the soul and the structure of the family and the benefit of the school so that that child could receive that diploma. I sat through ceremonies where respectable people, people whom I honor, asked people to contain their jubilation in certain ways, and it appeared to use an expression of my mother that it went in one ear and out the other and didn't stop in between. When the church no longer has cultured behavior, when the manners of the church sink behold the threshold of basic civility, the church is sinking low. And I'm appealing to every parent and grandparent here today to kindly explain why we take our hats off when we walk in a sacred place, and that if you're going to take your hat off, you need to contain the way you express your jubilation. It's not like I'm at a Tigers game or a Red Wings game or a Pistons game. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm a pastor, friends. I'm a pastor. I've been doing this for 30 years. It's time for us to talk about it. I hope you'll talk about it. 1 Corinthians 15. We come down to the end of the first book. And we see there's a crisis developing. It's a crisis that strips any sense of theological crisis completely out of the dialogue points for us. Verse 12. Paul has been making an effort to communicate that Jesus is actually a resurrected Savior. Now, if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found also to be false witnesses of God because we've testified against God 
that He raised Christ whom He did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Paul's going to get it very clear, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now the last time you went to Sabbath school, I highly doubt that there was a theological division on such a simple and true pillar of our belief in Christ. You might have argued over the fine points of the end time events. You might have dis disagreed and discussed the componentry of the sanctuary. But your church was not so twisted up and facing backwards that they hadn't even thought through intellectually that if Jesus, if there was no resurrection, then this whole thing's a farce and Paul's a liar. That's a pretty messed up church. Now, the devil would like to get us focusing on the wrong things. Last night, our conference president talked to us about our 28 fundamental beliefs and our witness, our fragrance. Right there in the very beginning is the Godhead. It appears that in some parts of the country from which Michigan is not exempted, that going back, I said going back, and digging up theological discussions of the past and suggesting that the fullness of the Godhead doesn't dwell bodily in Jesus Christ. We call that Arianism. It appears that it's got traction in some places and with some people to the point of looking like an old discussion is new truth. And some people grab on to some of the obscure statements out of the spirit of prophecy that those early beliefs were the beliefs. You need to understand something. We as Seventh-day Adventists believe in progressive truth. And you need to remember that where they started and where they ended up was not the same place. If you believe in the spirit of prophecy, and if James would have lived, you would have seen a journey in which the glorification of what Jesus is to you and what He's done for you would be exponentially amplified because He was actually God and the Holy Spirit as well. But some people hang on to the past. They think because our pioneers believed it, and some did for a while, that they should believe it too. But you need to remember something. For years, our pioneers, even James and Ellen, went to church on Sunday and they ate pigs. Truth is progressive. Paul wrote to the Galatians, why is it that we're returning to the weak and the beggarly elements? The church is low when it abandons present truth in favor of theological distractions. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is the problem of speaking in tongues. You can see why Paul didn't want to write the letter. It's nothing more than well, I shouldn't say nothing more, but it is primarily one rebuke after another. In verse 18, Paul writes, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. We don't just have problems at the Lord's Supper in this church. We have problems almost every Sabbath. Because people are so anxious to make sure they get their little bit in that they find self-actualization with a crowd, with an audience, that they run right over. Order. The church is low when it favors self-expression over group edification. 
Paul says, remember your family. Turn back to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, actually. We're going to go forward. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The tone of this book changes somewhat. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we have an awkward and embarrassing moment for the preacher. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I wish that you would bear with me a little, with a little foolishness, but indeed you're bearing with me. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealously, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Jesus. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you've not received, or a different gospel which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. That's not a compliment. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now, if I had to stand up here today and legitimate myself as your preacher, I'm not sure why anybody would stick around to listen. It's not okay for Paul to have to remind them that he brought them to Jesus. He was their spiritual midwife, per se. He delivered them into a knowledge of the truth. He says in verse 6, even if I'm unskilled in speech, I am not so in knowledge, but in fact, in every way that we have made this evident to you in all things. The church is low when it doesn't honor the honorable, especially its leaders. I want you to think about the culture of your church. Are you teaching your kids to speak when an older person addresses them? Are you teaching them to honor their Sabbath school teacher and their teacher and their preacher and their pathfinder leader? Or are your children disadvantaged with the idea that you are the best listener to the defects of your partners in ministry? We should be a place where there is more honor. It doesn't cover up the problems. It just creates the security to talk about them when we have to talk about them. I have two more illustrations. Acts chapter 21. It gets worse. Acts chapter 21, verse 19. How low can the church go? It's about to go a whole lot lower. Acts chapter 21, verses 19 to 22. Tucked into this glorious, victorious book is this very sad chapter. I'll start with verse 17. You need to know Paul has come from the Gentile churches and he's bringing a large offering. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and to all the elders who were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one through the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. But they had to get on to their next topic. The next topic, please. And they said, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And, very important conjunction, and they are all zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to, to circumcise their children or to walk 
according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you come. Therefore, do what we've told you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the story. I'm just going to tell it to you. Paul loves this church. But back in Jerusalem, the leaders are not willing to put their face into the wind about the fact that Christianity is not to be bound by ethnic Judaism. It is not to be held back by the customs of the Jews. It is to be liberated in a proper understanding of what the ceremonial law was to do and did as it pointed to Christ and embrace the moral law as it lifts up the risen Jesus and Jesus fulfills all those symbols and types. But the leaders in Jerusalem were not willing to bear the brunt of the persecution that would come from the unconverted Jews. So what does Paul do? He does something very unique. Paul is actually going to join with other men and he's going to go into the church, into the sanctuary, and for seven days he's going to show that he is part of a Nazarite vow. And on the seventh day, his hair will be cut off and thrown into the fire of the sacrifice. And there will be a ewe that is sacrificed. There will be a lamb that is sacrificed. There will be a ram that is sacrificed. Just for a moment, make sure you've got your thinking caps on. Aren't these all things that pointed to Jesus? But Paul wants to be reconciled. And Ellen White will write in Acts of the Apostles that he knows as long as he doesn't get the support of the men in Jerusalem, he's not going to get the traction he needs to do what he's called to do. So he goes ahead and he does it. You talk about a spirit of humility. You talk about a willingness to suffer and submit. This was the golden opportunity for all, Ellen White writes, for all the leading brethren to confess frankly that God had wrought through Paul and that at times they had erred in permitting the reports of his enemies to arouse. They shouldn't have been listening to the reports from the enemies. But they were listening to the reports from the enemies. These are the leaders of the church, James and some of the other apostles. And it aroused their, oh, ugly word, jealousy. And prejudice. But instead of uniting in an effort to do justice to the one who had been injured, that's Paul, they gave him counsel which showed they still cherished a feeling that Paul should be held responsible for the existing prejudice. They did not stand nobly in his defense, endeavoring to show the disaffected ones that they were wrong. But they sought to effect a compromise by counseling him to pursue a course which in their opinion would remove all cause for misapprehension. The brethren hoped that Paul, by following the course suggested, would give a decisive contradiction to the false reports concerning him. But you know what? Some of the reports were not false. They were true. And they were the truth they should have been preaching. They assured him that a decision of the formal council concerning the Gentiles, think Acts chapter 15, was still good. 
But the advice given was not consistent with that decision. The Spirit of God did not prompt this instruction. She writes, it was the fruit of cowardice. And she says that Paul was not authorized to compromise this way. He made a mistake. How low can the church go? Send him out. Beaten with rods. Stoned. Shipwrecked. Cold. Heat. Robbers, and above all this, his concern for the churches. This is the Apostle Paul rejected, his heart breaking as he sends letters to the Corinthians and the Galatians and others. I came across an interesting quote. This is for all the leaders that are listening to me here today. So if you're a leader, please listen to this carefully. It's from the heart, Ellen White Devotional, page 209. Talking about Moses. When I read this, I was stunned. She was talking about Moses going into the wilderness for 40 years. You know, he messed up everything it looked like. She says short-sighted mortals would have dispensed with that 40 years of training amid the mountains of Midian, deeming it a great loss of time. But infinite wisdom placed him, Moses, who was to be the mighty statesman, the deliverer of his people from slavery, in circumstances during this period, and this is what got me, to develop his honesty. Honesty. Now, I won't read the rest of the thought, but I will tell you, my mind started circulating. What was the honesty that Moses needed to develop? What was the honesty that every leader needs? It's the honesty of knowing that you have a responsibility to do what's right, even if it costs you the favor of the people you are leading. Paul was literally almost ripped to pieces because of their bad advice. He was in the temple and someone saw him and they said he's brought Greeks into the temple and in the name of Desecrating the temple, they grabbed him and they would have torn him apart except for the secular Romans. How low can the church go? Well, it can go one step lower, and this is as low as I could imagine it ever going. I don't like to say it, and I don't like to think it. But on a Thursday night, the New Testament church fell asleep while Jesus was shedding great drops of blood. It was on an early Friday morning that one of the members of the New Testament church showed up with the betrayal coins jangling in his pocket. It was a little later on that same cool Friday morning that one of the leaders of that New Testament church is articulating that he doesn't know Jesus. And again, I really don't know Jesus. And finally, he's cussing his way into freedom of association from Jesus. This was not just a member of the church. This was friend of Jesus. I want you to remember that the church of the Old Testament and the church of the New Testament are not separated by anything except their histories. And some of those were diverging. The church that rejected Jesus took His life. The church that's being born is proclaiming His resurrected life. Friends, this church 
couldn't go any lower than it's gone before. So if your church is in trouble, take hope. If your church is under siege, have courage. If your church has a few problems, maybe even a few compromised leaders, if your church doesn't have the culture it's to have, hang on. We should remember that the church, enfeebled and defective though it be, is the only object on earth in which Christ bestows His supreme regard. Nothing else. Do the word study. The phrase supreme regard is used only two ways. And most of the 60-some ways it's used is only for the church. Sometimes she uses the word, the phrase, in an ugly way because she has to talk about the supreme regard of one of the doctors she's writing to for himself. The church is low when its leaders are insecure and lack spiritual integrity and are fearful, but none of that is new. It's all old stuff. Now I want to tell you, I know for a fact that there are many people here listening to me today who do not believe that the church is the object of supreme regard, nor should it be. There are people here today that have been mistreated by the church. Probably everybody at some point in time. And if you're honest, you may have done a little mistreating yourself. I hope you can say you're sorry. And if collectively the church has done wrong to you, I'm sorry, and I hope the people who have done it will someday come to the place where they can say they're sorry. But in the meantime, we need to know that being at Sabbath school matters. We need to know that being at the midweek worship service matters. We need to know that the shortest mission trip is the one from your driveway to the church's parking lot, and it ought to be taken often. We need to know that we are stewards of the divine and what is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. We have the sacred opportunity of proclaiming the true message of the three angels in an age in which things are about to turn backwards again. This world is fragile. Don't operate under the idea that it's going to stay the same. You can only stretch and pull you can only gnaw on the cords of civility. You can only hammer on the pillars of truth for so long. And eventually the world's going to say, somebody save us from the chaos of secularism. We're almost there. Supreme regard. My wife is sitting out there listening to me. I want to tell you something. I know what supreme regard means. I hold her with supreme regard. She holds me with supreme regard. I want to assure you, I love this church and I'm appealing to you to not just verbalize the words. I'm appealing to you to reconnect in a way that says, that's my body. That's the theater of grace. That's the pillar of truth. And if it's under siege, I'm going to be there to make sure it survives. We are living in an age when the world needs the church. And besides... How many other little Ronnies are running around the Midwest, maybe even Michigan, with a grandma praying for them and they need to go to Camp Asabo or they need to be at VBS or they need to be in the church school? How many other little Ronnies need to be encouraged to go into the ministry or into the teaching profession or whatever profession you go into for Jesus? This is where we're at, friends. And I need to remind you that even though it looks like it's coming apart, 
coming undone and coming down. It's not. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.